Hey everybody, welcome to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. So prepare to have your mind blown. I suggest you get a piece of paper, pen, and a lot of time because this is one of the most fascinating, invigorating podcasts I've ever recorded in my entire life. Dr. Andrew Huberman of the Stanford Huberman Lab joins me today to talk about neuroscience. I know that may not sound appealing to you to start, but we get into such amazing things about how to optimize learning, the benefits of meditation, some other relaxation methods that can really optimize your performance and your long-term development. Dr. Huberman is potentially the greatest neuroscientist I've come across in a long time. He may not appreciate that intro because there's a lot of people that have come before him, but he's doing such a great job of really simplifying. And his understanding of the data and the research is just so vast that he fills in every little gap that you might have in understanding how your brain works and maybe most importantly, how to optimize how your brain works. We're all seeking our greatest self. And Dr. Huberman is just an encyclopedia of information. I've literally got eight pages of notes from him talking over the maybe hour and 20 minutes that this podcast is. So I don't suggest you listen to it on fast because there is a lot of complex scientific information, but we get into some really interesting things around light, around circadian rhythms, mindfulness and stress, and a ton of amazing information and resources around how the brain works and really how to use your brain or understand how to use your brain to maximize this existence that we have, to understand the dopamine system a little bit and why that's driving us and so, so much more. So massive shout out to Dr. Huberman and the Huberman Lab at Stanford. Again, I could run through seven more pages of notes here and tell you what this is about, but I'm not going to continue to ramble. What I am going to do is highly suggest you give yourself a little bit of time in a space that allows you to concentrate and understand this. And you're going to likely want to listen to it twice with any more rambling from me, enjoy this conversation with Dr. Andrew Huberman. All right, Dr. Huberman, we've been going at it for 38 minutes and the audience is going to be angry that I haven't recorded up to this point because we've had some problems. <laughs> but I know we've just started to scratch the surface with your brilliance. So first of all, welcome to the show and been following from a distance for a while, sir, and you're an absolute Brilliant, brilliant man. Thank you for everything you do. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me on. I I follow your work as well and I'm super impressed and delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And as I said in our previous conversation that I'm a massive nerd of neuroscience and I don't claim to know a lot, but it just is absolutely fascinating what we're starting to discover. And for me, the reason I get so intrigued is, is this idea of we can actually change anything. And the way you do anything is ultimately influencing how your brain develops and forms. And what I found you, I've literally been watching every one of your videos, usually multiple times. So I just start to sink into the unconscious and start to understand. And just, you know, the way it's evolving over the last, what seems like, at least in my eyes, the last 10 to 15 years and probably longer, but I haven't been following that closely, has almost been this exponential curve. And you and I started talking about that just prior to the call is, you know, what are the reasons why neuroscience is really becoming, you know, a front and center science now because it seems like so many people are reverting back into this meditation practice of the ancient eastern traditions and so many people are implementing breathing practices and this whole mindfulness curve i guess this mindfulness shift is happening and i think 
quantification of it is actually playing a big role because there's this huge subset of the population who actually wants to have the scientific literature and prove that meditation is not just a bunch of hippies trying to rationalize them sitting on on their butt. Yeah, it's a really interesting question as to why things are progressing so fast. So, I won't give an entire lecture on the history of neuroscience, but uh, (laughs) in three minutes or less, you know, it's an incredibly young science. So, in 1906, there was a uh, neuroscientist, Ramoni Cajal, arguably the greatest neuroscientist of all time. He had uh, like supernatural levels of insight just from looking at fixed specimens in his laboratory. And he was the one that proposed the synapse. Before that, everyone thought the, the brain was just one big cell, one big mesh of, you know, of fibers and wires from one cell. And he actually described the synapse, that there are little gaps between lots of different cells that we call neurons. And you know, it wasn't that long ago. It seems like a long time ago, but it wasn't that long ago. And then you fast forward, not a whole lot happened until the 1960s when the ability to record from the brain electrically came about. And then computers hit the scene in the late 80s and 90s, and you could store a lot of data and you could record a lot of data. So brain imaging and all that. And then really, it's been in the last 15 years, and this is what you were pointing to, that genetics, molecular biology, cell biology just exploded on the scene because chemists and engineers and physicists started working on neuroscience problems. And to be a little more specific, what's available now that wasn't available 10, 15 years ago are ways to see neurons, to actually see them in all their shape and glory, as well as what they're doing, their electrical activity and chemical activities in real time in live animals. Typically, this is done in mice and even in humans and to image the brain on really fast time scales. So not just like a little image of like like a PET scan or, a, or an MRI and say, oh, there's this thing lighting up, but really understand what are the dynamics of how the brain is activated during a particular sequence of thought or sequence of action. And I've, I'll just kind of use this as an opportunity to throw out a really key concept that most people don't know. And I think if your listeners know this, they're going to know more about neuroscience than, than 99% of people out there really, because the thing to understand is the concept of a neural circuit. We're so obsessed and the popular media has been so obsessed with the idea that, oh, you know, fear is in the amygdala, thought is in the forebrain, the hippocampus is for memory. And that's because of lesion studies, largely where those areas are are missing and you see deficits in people or in animals. But what a lot of people don't know is that those deficits often are compensated for if you wait some period of time later. And that's because the brain has neural circuits. So just like moving my my wrist towards my shoulder, you know, is going to engage the bicep, but it engages a lot of other things too. And there's a whole set of motor commands that come from from the brain to to perform that operation. The same thing for thought or calm or stress or creativity. They involve neural circuits. And the way to think about neural circuits is it's like a song on a piano. Song on a piano involves many different keys. There's an E flat and there's an A minor and all this. You wouldn't say A minor or E flat is the song. It's just, but if you took it out, the song would sound weird. It might not even sound like the song if you took, you know, if depending on the importance of that key. So the way to think about anything that you do from the time you go to sleep until the time you wake up and then all day long is the activation of these neural circuits. It's like songs that are getting played. And that ability to see those songs, to know what the keys are when each key is being played and with which in, what intensity and at what cadence. That's what's happened in the last 10 years. We now have tools to visualize that 
and to record it and to measure it. And so you, Ben, can come into my lab and we can put you through a virtual experience or an experience and record how that's the songs that are played. And then you can go meditate or do some practice and come back. And we actually study forms of meditation in our lab or things like it, non-sleep deep relaxation, bring you back and say, well, how are the songs played now? Which songs are played? As opposed to, oh, you know, does his amygdala light up or something? Does that make sense? Absolutely, it does. So all this research and, and, and studying people have been doing, trying to associate brain regions to particular actions and emotions may not be all that useful. The, the words I'm going to fall to my scientific training, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. So you need it. It's just like understanding the, the wiring diagram of the brain, the so-called connectome you know, people or the genome, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. It's not going to get you where you want to go, but you did, it was important to have that information first. So I would say it's great that they did that work. It gives us a sense of where to look, but now the time is ripe for developing new theories about how the brain works, building on the existing ones. You know, most of the stuff that's out there is generally true in some way or another, but there's still a lot to learn. Brilliant. Now you brought up meditation, so I don't want to let that pass without going down that road a little bit. And, you know, I'm verbally one of these people in the fitness industry trying to advocate people to meditate, you know, even in the smallest amount. I've seen tremendous benefits in my life and my ability to think and remain calm. I'd like to just have you kind of go through some of the results, perhaps, or the benefits you're seeing of people actually going away and doing these non-sleep types of relaxation. And is that actually quantifying or quantifiably changing the brain? And if so, is there any type of duration you've seen and perhaps the duration it takes to unwire that stuff? Like if I stop meditating for a certain amount of time, is it there or do, how long does it take to go away? Yeah. So I'm happy to dive deep into this topic and I'll do my best to throw out some actionable resources as I go because I, I know that that's often what people are looking for. So just really briefly, so my lab works on things like visual repair and regeneration of you know damaged brains and we also work on separately on stress and also what I would call optimal performance, how to, how to leverage the nervous system for optimal performance. Everyone knows the power of sleep, right? Nowadays, because of Matt Walker's great book and because of all the discussion about sleep, people are kind of obsessed with sleep, something that bodybuilders have known about for a long, long time, right? It's interesting because there's been so much discussion about sleep that now people have sleep-related anxiety. People think you know that people have trouble sleeping. So my lab doesn't work on sleep. Stanford's got a great sleep lab. There are other great sleep labs out there, of course. My laboratory has built a platform for measuring stress and measuring performance in, we use an animal model or the mouse because we can do genetic manipulations. And then we also have a lab specifically look at humans. So people come into my lab, they put on VR goggles, we wire them up to a large number of different technologies to measure neural activation and, and their physiology. And then we give them experiences that for them represent mildly to severely stressful kind of pain points, things like diving great white sharks, snakes, spiders, heights, claustrophobia, you know. Now, and we look at people who have generalized anxiety. We put people through these experiences, not because we want to terrorize them or startle them, and we don't do that. What we do is we put them through those experiences because we want to get a sense of how their nervous system reacts to novel stimuli, how it reacts to boring stimuli, how they react and how their brain is managing these states of, of mind or states of being generally. You know, on the surface, it looks like stress and fear, but really what we're trying to do is we're trying to tease out how their physiology works. Think of this a little bit like if I were going to draw a parallel to the physical fitness space, it's a little bit like strength, power, speed, flexibility, mobility, you know, and kind of 
conditioning. You know, there are a lot of aspects to what you say muscle, right? There are a lot of aspects to the mind. And so we're trying to, and how the, the mind reacts to different scenarios. So that's what we're trying to do. We get their baseline measurements. Then what we do is we give them one of three non-sleep deep relaxation protocols. Now, this could be called meditation, but here's the problem with studying meditation in the laboratory. Meditation is hard to what we say call operationalize because there's so many variables, you know, eyes open, eyes closed, third eye center focused or not, lotus position or standing, sit, you know, and what ends up happening when you're working with the general population coming into your lab and doing experiments is we need to standardize things as much as possible. So I'm not trying to pull it away from the naming of meditation, but I call it non-sleep deep rest. And so we have three protocols. One is a protocol that resembles something that your listeners may be familiar with, which is yoga nidra, which literally means yoga sleep, where you lie down, there's no movement involved, you're supposed to stay awake, and you attend to a script. The script walks you through two things that are very important. One is exhale emphasized breathing, so longer exhales than inhales, which has a tendency to relax the nervous system in general. And the other thing that it does is it walks you, it directs your attention to say the surface of your body, just your hands, just your face, the, your entire body contact with the floor. And then it starts moving your perception out further and further into the room where the room is relative to the, the lab, to the school, etc. So this is a power of the human mind to scale our kind of focus of attention. So it does that. And what we find is that it puts people into very deep states of relaxation. Practitioners of yoga nidra, of which I am, are familiar with the fact that even um, though you stay awake when you do this, you emerge from a 10 to 30 minute session of yoga nidra exceptionally relaxed and clear as if you had slept for many hours. And here's what's interesting. I'll just kind of you know give you all the information on, on this first. So I'll talk about the other two protocols. So yoga nidra is a way that you can actually recover sleep that you're not getting. This is a, and we know this because of the states of mind that it puts you into foremost, the brain waves that, that it activates. Second of all, it has this incredible capacity to build up dopamine reserves in the area of the brain called the, the basal ganglia. Now this is work that was done from a laboratory in Scandinavia that the data are a little complicated as they came through in the paper. So this paper got missed by a lot of people. But basically the lying still component, all right, the non the, the total non-action combined with wakefulness builds up these reserves of dopamine in the in the striatum and in the in the basal ganglia. And this is more dopamine isn't always good. But in this case it's good. What it does is it seems to reset the circuitry for action in a very powerful way. And I'd be happy to send you the study and reference it because I don't want to gloss over it too, you know, at too much of a surface level. But when they use a sort of competitive binding of a radioactive ligand, and they, it gets a little bit down in the weeds. And so, but it's a beautiful study. And so, it really appears that these non-sleep deep relaxation states are very powerful for resetting physical capacity and mental capacity. And then here's what's really interesting is when we and others do the follow-up on these nidra-like protocols and people who have done them, two things happen. First of all, they can go back into stressful scenarios or what would be stressful scenarios and manage themselves much better. And they also become better at transitioning into sleep. So one thing that I'm really excited about is building protocols that get people better at sleeping. You know, everyone's told you got to eat right, sleep right, and exercise. And here's what that looks like. But a big part of 
you know, my mission lately is to figure out food and exercise. It's kind of like there's a willpower step, right? And the study of willpower is its own thing. But sleep is a tricky one because you can't will yourself to sleep. So how can you get better at sleeping? And I, this now this is just personal anecdote. So when I wake up, if I don't feel rested or I feel like I haven't slept enough, I'll do a 30-minute Nidra protocol, this deep relaxation protocol. And I emerge from that feeling like I slept 10 hours deep. It's amazing. And my own subjective experience is also that if I do this for 10 minutes before, say, public speaking or 10 minutes before physical activity, then I feel so much better easily you know i would you know again it's anecdotal now in the laboratory we see people go into these very deep states of relaxation so it mimics sleep and it's completely cost free which is great there are scripts available on youtube my lab's got one that we've been giving people who come in and are subjects in the lab i'd be happy to provide a link to that because it's it's a little bit longer than most but if i wake up in the middle of the night and i'm having trouble falling back asleep i'll do one of these so so tools to get better at sleeping tools to recover rest that you're not able to get through sleep because you've got parents and busy people and there's all these contradictory messages out there you know you got to grind you got to take care of your kids and yourself and exercise you should wake up at 4 30 in the morning but wait you need to sleep or you're going to get dementia and fall apart and be a, a wreck and i think sleep is critical sleep is the way that our mind gets reorganized and is able to sequence things properly right and at a neurochemical level it's you know rolling adenosine back uphill and doing a bunch of things important at that level too. So that's one protocol. Yeah. Have you ever heard of anybody doing these yoga nidras for extended periods of time, like in, in the realm of eight hours instead of sleeping? So it's a small subset of yogis or, or people who are claimed to be uh, spiritually advanced, enlightened people who are doing what they tell, what they, what they say is these extended yoga nidras where they can literally sleep for eight hours, quote unquote sleep while still being conscious and waking up feeling exponentially better, but still being able to do things in, with their conscious mind while their body's resting. Has there anybody ever done any quantification of that? I'm not aware of any. It's interesting you bring this up. When I was growing up, I, I was really involved in the Muay Thai community for a while. And my teacher, he insisted that he didn't sleep. He was, a, he was an Indian guy. He'd been a pit fighter in Thailand and then came over here and you know, went through the university system. And he said, oh, yeah, you know, I just – I can just put myself into deep relaxation. I'm not aware, you know, I think accessing deep sleep is is important. Now, Nidra is there's a whole field of of people that work on this and I can provide some references to some the, the one I have no, you know, commercial affiliation in any of these groups, but the Kamini Desai D E S A I and I think it's her father Amrit have have really pioneered yoga nidra practices in the US and they are big proponents of the idea that if you do this, you can do it for deep relaxation, you can do it to improve sleep, and you can, in addition, they, there is an intention component. So intentions is kind of getting out there on the edge of what neuroscience can really understand, but, but it relates to the second protocol that we use. So intentions, so sometimes in a state of deep relaxation, the Nidra script will instruct you to make a, some positive statement that, you know, like, like I am, I'm relaxed and happy and productive or something. I'm, I am being you know, kind of surface level about this. You can make one that's more profound than that, but those things are pretty good. Most people would want them. So, and it starts to look a little bit like self-hypnosis. And the reason I mentioned hypnosis is that that's the second protocol that we examine. Hypnosis, people, when they hear hypnosis, they think of, you know, stage hypnosis, like somebody like, you know, with the tick-tocking of a, of a pendant and the person cracking like a duck or something on stage. There's a whole 
thing related to stage hypnosis, we're, we're talking about medical and clinical hypnosis. So Stanford's Department of Psychiatry, we have a guy there, his name is David Spiegel, who's world-class at, at understanding the neuroscience, the brain states of hypnosis, has used hypnosis for addiction and trauma treatment. Brilliant person, brilliant work, serious clinician helping people with serious problems. My lab has adopted a hypnosis protocol that's really about internal control. And so it really is it looks a lot and sounds a lot like the Nidra script, but it it involves a kind of repeated intention. You could think of this as kind of like a mantra about the person's ability to to control their what we call the autonomic nervous system, so heart rate, breathing, sweating, aka stress, or their response to the outside world. You know, we have this incredible system, which is called the autonomic nervous system, because which means automatic, that is designed to match our level of alertness or calmness and our attention, where we place our, our, our mental attention, to the demands of the outside world. And meditation and sleep and yoga nidra are the few times in your 24-hour cycle where you're not attending to anything in the outside world besides your own internal real estate. And this, this hypnosis protocol is designed to get people to see and recognize that internal real estate. There's nothing mystical about this, right? If I pay attention to my heart rate or my breathing, it's like just paying attention to my internal real estate and to realize that despite the name autonomic, which is a misnomer, that there are access points through which we can control our internal real estate. So that's the hypnosis protocol. And then the third protocol is a breathing protocol. We consulted with Brian McKenzie and some of the other people in the breathwork community to develop protocols that I know Brian was on your show. It gets down deep into we run people's carbon dioxide tolerance test. We find out what cadence they need to do if it's a 733. So that, that's probably too much to get into right here. All three of these protocols help people realize the, this fundamental truth, which is, and there are chapters about this in neuroscience textbooks, which is that we have this thing called interoception. I can focus on the outside world or I can focus on the inside world. And also that there's this system of self-regulation that we call the autonomic nervous system. But a big part of you know why I go on, why I'm on your podcast and, and, and doing education on Instagram and this kind of thing is to tell people, look, there are access points. There are ways in which you can learn to control this so-called autonomic nervous system. And those access points are very real. Other animals use them. They know how to use them. Humans somehow we missed, we didn't get the instruction book and we're trying to learn how to use them. So anyway, those are, those are the protocols. I encourage listeners if they want to try Nidra. A lot of people that have trouble sleeping say it helps. You know, full disclosure, I'm also, and I've talked about this once, you know, a few times publicly, like I'm not making recommendations about supplements, but there are things that help people sleep better, you know, in addition to these. So if you wanted to talk about that, these are the things of the kind of magnesium, magnesium three and eight theanine variety. Nothing really esoteric or wild as, you know, I've talked about. I'm not a big fan of melatonin because it's a hormone. It suppresses puberty during development. That's its job. It has effects on the reproductive axis. But yoga nidra is a power tool and things like it because they teach you how to relax, deliberately relax. So what I like to call this is deliberate disengagement. I'm not talking sleep. I don't even call it meditation, even though I think that's the right word for it. Deliberate disengagement is powerful and it has powerful effects while you do it and afterward. That ties us perfectly into what we were talking about before we started the conversation with this interoception and this concept of being able to focus on the inside of your body and then progress it further and further out. And could you just take us down the path of explaining what exactly is happening there and, and where we should be placing our focus as we're going through these nidras or, or potentially meditation? 
Yeah. And I'm happy to tie in. Uh, yes, definitely. And I'm happy to tie in some of the, what neuroscience has to say about kind of the neurochemical states, you know, that relate to different points of attention. It's an area that is, um, you know, is not completely understood, but that there's some good evidence out there. I'm going to just, because in my business, citing people properly is a, is a key part of what we do. There's a book about, I think it's called The Molecule of More. Let me just make sure before I, I misquote that, you know, that's really, I think is really interesting. Yeah, The Molecule of More is a very interesting book about how dopamine and other neurochemicals relate to points of attention. And I just want to cite, I don't know the gentleman that wrote it, but I, I want to cite that book because not everything I'm going to say is my work. But I think it's a very interesting idea that will come up now. So, so the idea is that we have the capacity to focus really on two things at once. So a lot of, you know, and this is work that my lab's been focused on, that I've been focused on for a long time. So here's the deal. We can multitask, okay? This is part of the problem. We can and we do all the time. Now, we, I don't know who kind of put out there that we can't multitask, but your attention can basically be split between two places. And that's because primate species of which we are, we're an old world primate, developed something called covert attention. Covert attention is the ability for you and I say to look at one another, have a conversation, but I'm also attending to something in the corner of the room. This is a, a feature of the visual system and of the, the brain more generally that evolved so that one could be alert to threats that might be incoming. It has a lot to do with how the social hierarchies of primate troops developed. It has a lot to do with the fact that if you're a a primate and you look directly at a at a primate that's superior to you, that primate often will, will try and hurt you. And so you need to be able to understand what's going on around you and make good decisions about that. But you don't necessarily want to just stare at things directly. So our attention really can be split between two locations. Oftentimes, one act, like let's just think of them as like two different spheres or two different points of attention. I like to think of them as spheres for reasons that we'll discuss in a minute, which is that each of those can shrink or expand depending on how much of your attention is going to say you and I in the conversation. I can make you and like what, what feels like 100% of my attention, but actually 1% is probably out there on the margins of what's going on in the room. Because if a door slammed or a, you know someone ran in, I'd be able to attend to that, right? So these two spheres of attention are what we wake up with, and believe it or not, they're what we go to sleep with. And the idea is that those spheres of attention can be focused, you can focus just on your internal real estate. So this is what happens when you meditate, or you focus on a third eye center, you're concentrating on your breathing and your physiology. You know, your breathing is the closest thing you've got to a second hand on your own experience, right? Everything else is kind of timed by the outside world, cars going by, internet, people's speech, etc. Your breathing is the constant. Your heart rate is a constant too, to some extent, but it's different for reasons we can discuss, which is that I can't control my heart rate directly, whereas I can control my breathing. So you got this point of attention on the inside, and then you got this point of attention that you can put anywhere else. I can put it on a book, I can put it on Instagram, I can put it by looking at Instagram, that is, I can, uh, I can put it on somebody, I can, you know, a conversation with a spouse or a colleague, the weight that I'm going to move in the weight room, right? The distance I'm going to run up a mountain, I can look, focus on a tree and run towards it. Okay, so these are kind of obvious things. Those points of attention are under our deliberate control. This is something that we we don't really appreciate, in, but it's under our deliberate control in the same way that voluntary motor action is under deliberate control. I can pick up my mug of tea here and take a sip if I want to or not. And learning to control these points of attention is something that 
we sort of do because we're told in school, okay, look at this book and read or, you know, or you see something that you want to do. I'm going to go lift that weight or I'm going to focus on this particular movie or podcast. But it's really the ability to link those two, to tether them. And th this tether is a, is a fundamental aspect of our consciousness. And here's why. These two spheres of attention can be brought solely within the body. So meditation and concentrating, say, on a third eye center allows me to bring my attention into my own body, my own self. And now it's fully within the realm of what we call intero interoception, I-N-T-E-R-O-C-E-P-T-I-O-N, interoception. And that's very different than exteroception where I'm looking in the outside world. Now, how is it different? Because all I'm really describing is like what people do all day. How is it different? Well, it turns out that when we focus on things outside of our body, it engages a couple of different neuromodulators that are very important. What's a neuromodulator? A neuromodulator is something that changes the activity of nerve transmission. It either increases or decreases the volume of the conversation or the speed of the conversation between neurons. Neurons just chatter to one another in electricity and chemicals. So when I focus outside myself and I become goal-driven, there's an engagement of the dopamine circuit. Nature evolved this, okay? It's like, what's out there that I want? And dopamine, whose close cousins are things like epinephrine or noradrenaline, also testosterone, regulates this pathway for reasons that will become obvious as I tell you more about it. It's, hey, I'm over here. I'm recognizing that I'm this body over here and that's something over there and I want it. Now, that could be the cup of tea across the room or it could be an Olympia title. It could be, right? It could be purely conceptual. It can be a person that you want to get to know and perhaps mate with. It could be a person that you want to avoid. But this goal-driven behavior engages this dopamine circuit. And by goal-driven, it's necessarily outside your internal real estate. It becomes exteroception. Nature evolved this for very particular reasons to get animals to move toward things that they need, food, warmth, sex, etc., in order to reproduce and to continue their species. It's a, operating at a very low level. And so we don't think about it. We think about dopamine more as reward. People think, oh, I get the thing and then I feel the reward. But actually, that's not the way dopamine works. Dopamine is the, the reason that book is called The Molecule of More is it's a, it's a molecule that drives us to want things that are outside our current experience. Now, meditation yoga nidra and focusing, taking that sphere, that second sphere of attention and bringing it inward. Now our focus of attention becomes our internal real estate. And so what very likely happens over time, and there is work that's happening out of Wisconsin and other places that are focusing on this now, is that now we're able to access a sense of goal-directed behavior and reward simply by our own internal experience. When we say well, you don't need things from the outside, you're not being driven in an outside-in kind of way, that's actually a neurochemical phenomenon that occurs when people meditate over periods of time. So I'm riffing long now, so I just want to check in. Is this making sense? Um, Absolutely makes sense. I'm just sitting here voraciously taking notes because I want to understand it so I can conceptualize it. Yeah. So when you focus that second sphere of attention on your internal landscape, a couple positive things happen. One is you develop this ability to access this dopamine system, which itself feels good. Nature was clever, right? She designed us to feel good going after things that hopefully will propagate us, right? That's that's the way it works, right? The, the punish you couldn't you couldn't wait until you got there. 
right? So like, for instance, I, I endorsed David Goggins' book. I know David a little bit from some work we did together. And, and you know, I always like to use him as an example because he's somehow, at least from my understanding, he somehow has made the effort process itself rewarding, right? By forcing the, the strain part to be the point of focus, not the goal. So we talk about the journey, not the destination. But that's, and, and my colleague, Carol Dweck, developed this thing called growth mindset, which is vastly misunderstood but by the general public. But it's a beautiful concept and it has very solid data to support it, which is that growth mindset is really about deriving pleasure and reward from the effort process. It was discovered in these kids that love doing math problems they knew they couldn't solve. And she was like, wow, this is incredible. And it's so, and it's the key to higher achievement. It's the key to higher learning. These kids do phenomenally well. Right. So the meditation and mindfulness practices are a form of learning to derive reward from focusing attention inward, where the, the goal-directed behavior is about a recognition of the self about understanding how your internal landscape is working. This is watching the thoughts go by. This is quote unquote mindfulness. So then it becomes a pleasurable activity. Now, the it takes some time to, to learn to bring this process inward. But a key aspect to this two points of attention thing that we all have innately is this ability to focus at two points of attention. Is that once you realize that you can direct that second sphere of attention wherever you want, it becomes very powerful. However, the setting of your attention to a particular location, whether or not it's a book or a podcast or a movie or a conversation, it requires effort. So I like to think of these two spheres of attention as tethered together by kind of a pole. So you imagine like a sphere of attention that's on you. Let's say we're having a conversation. I'm paying very close attention to you. And every once in a while, I'm paying attention to like how I feel internally because I'm registering what you're saying. Now, if I suddenly want to move my attention to another location and deliberately set it on a book and focus on that, that movement, that resetting of our attention is requires some energy. And over time, it becomes exhausting. This is why hard work like writing or a really hard workout isn't just physically exhausting, it's mentally exhausting. The way we reset this capacity to set our attention in very deliberate ways is absolutely in sleep, both through neurochemical mechanisms and by a second mechanism, which is the tether becomes loose. So in sleep, space and time are totally fluid, right? Like, you asked about these yogis that sit for hours just you know perhaps not sleeping and can recover sleep we need periods of time every 24 hours where we're not setting our attention to anything and that period is sleep it's the tether becomes loose so that if you know if we were in a dream right now you know someone could float through the window or a plane could land on top of my house or a dog could walk and we would think that was fine because space and time are fluid right it's a very unusual state and that tether requires effort. And when then when you wake up, right, now that tether can be reset. You have the ability again. It's like you've recovered your mental capacity. Meditation, if it involves highly focused states, because I know, med you know meditation isn't one thing where I'm really focusing on like a point across the room or I'm really focusing on my breathing is a form of setting the tether. It can be a little bit a form of exertion. So, I like to also, and I know you're well aware of these and use them, I like to point to practices that involve deliberate disengagement of this attentional system. Yoga Nidra is one. You have to listen to the script and follow some instructions. But hypnosis is another. You really kind of hand over 
the power of where you're directing your attention to something else. And if you think about it, watching a great movie that's very engaging or even a great book, it doesn't feel like effort. You're kind of brought along because they're guiding your attention. You're in a kind of form of hypnosis. Now, I use social media to educate. I use social media to learn. I use social media to socialize. Social media is a really good example of a technology that is exceptionally good at drawing in our attention, right? Because it's, and I don't think of it as manipulative. It's just, it's just cleverly hijacked these, these reward systems. So when you look at your phone and you go, what's out there? You're literally setting your reward system to something that's out there because that's the way it was designed to be used. So the takeaway from this is, you have two points of attention. They can both be inside, as in meditation. They can both One can be inside and one can be outside. Very hard to get your points of attention completely outside yourself, although there are some esoteric states where that can happen, kind of where you feel kind of disembodied or you kind of move out of body. They're rare states, probably rare enough that we don't want to spend too much time on them. But once you realize you have these two points of attention and that deep sleep and non-sleep deep relaxation are where you reset the ability to, to set your attention, then all of a sudden I feel like when we explain that to people who come through the lab or when I explain this to people, I'm hoping that a light goes off and they think, ah, now I understand that my ability to really focus and drive and work hard and, and really build things is directly proportional to my ability to deliberately disengage. And this is why you find athletes who are really extremely good performers or people who work in the you know, elite military or super high performers are excellent at deliberate disengagement. And so that, that's kind of how I think about consciousness and the dopamine part. One thing interoception and focus on your internal states as opposed to things outside you tends to increase levels of neuromodulators like serotonin and oxytocin. Those, those names are thrown around a lot, but in general, that kind of like feeling good just being in your body kind of thing that, pe- that meditators and people who are in a spiritual space um, talk about, that's because those molecules tend to... They're, I, I call them our softer side. You know, dopamine, norepinephrine, testosterone are about like goal achievement in all animals, not just in humans. All right. Men and women, everything in between and all animals, dopamine is the molecule of more. I want that. It's outside me. I, it's going to activate me and make me want to move toward that goal. Serotonin and oxytocin are about staying put. They're about relishing in, in the, the experience that you're in. To really drive this home, I'll just quickly use the example of, of, of sex, okay? Because it's usually the one people remember. The transition into sex like involves a, the desire for something else or somebody else. It is a what we call parasympathetic dominated state. So the arousal itself. So it's interesting. There's this kind of blip of like what you would call stress. It's like, I want that. That's over there. <laughs> and then there's a necessary transition into a more parasympathetic state. The sexual arousal in men and women can't occur unless you know either party, both parties are relaxed enough. Then what people don't know is that, so I'm, I'm talking about, you know, I'm a biologist. So I just say, you know, this is the, the erection response and this is the vaginal lubrication response. Then orgasm itself is a sympathetic driven response. It's driven, not sympathy, it's driven by the stress system. Why? Well, Mother Nature is very clever and slightly diabolical. She realized that immediately after a high-intensity, high-stress event, so to speak, although it's a pleasurable one, there's a rebound of the relaxation response. 
it ensures that people will spend time together and bond as their system is flooded with oxytocin and serotonin because pair bonding and mate bonding is critical to the propagation of our species too. It's not just about the act of mating. So there's this like stress, calm, stress, calm dance that that sexual reproduction process reflects. And it's proof positive that evolution cares about the conditioning of our ability to direct our attention and our internal states. Otherwise, we don't get to reproduce. And so anyway, I just kind of throw it out there. It's, it's, you know, it's also a time in which your attention is moving back and forth between in, out, external and internal, right? Internal, your own experience, external, the other person. And, and it's, it's a profound example of what we're sort of expected to do in, not in terms of behavior, of course, but in terms of our consciousness all the time is this toggling back and forth. Okay, now I've definitely riffed along. So, and I feel like you're in your flow right there. I feel like you were you <laughs> that statement. It, it was awesome. Yeah. Like, truthfully, my brain was sitting here processing, and my head hurts now from all this this processing. But it seemed like that transitions really nicely into is the idea of learning. And you said you focus a lot on learning, and this idea of externally driven focus is is likely what it sounds like the basis of all learning. And, and some people obviously have an accelerated ability to learn, perhaps due to the dopamine system. Can you walk us down that path a little bit? I don't know, I'm not sure if your brain's ready riff again but yeah so i mean yeah the, the downside of getting into neuroscience very young and growing up in this is that everything to me is through the lens of neuroscience i'm, I'm working on that but yeah so i'll take a deep breath and let your listeners kind of di digest or pause or you know so neuroplasticity so neuroplasticity is this incredible ability that our nervous system has to modify itself according to experience okay so Real quickly, let's kind of define some of the parameters and then get into what one can do to improve neuroplasticity. First of all, we want to talk about adaptive plasticity only because you know, if I have a brain injury, there's going to be plasticity, but it's maladaptive. It's not, not good for me. So adaptive plasticity. There are two forms of plasticity. One is childhood plasticity, which is mainly discovered by my scientific great-grandparents, David Hubel and Torrance and Weasel. They won the Nobel for showing that during early development from about birth until about age 25, the brain is exceedingly plastic. Your experiences, the experiences of a child wire you up, essentially. Did they associate that with any particular neurochemical states or neurochemical differences between adults and children? Great question. Uh, no, but a lot of their a lot of their scientific offspring did. So so here's a question that you're asking, I think is, you know, why is the brain so plastic early in life? Two reasons. One is there's a lot of extracellular space. So over time, that literally the space between neurons that's made up of is sort of what's called extracellular matrix and glial cells firms up. And so the neurons can't move their connections around as much. Okay. The second one is that there are chemicals, mainly neuromodulators, we'll get into this, but dopamine and acetylcholine that are prominently secreted and expressed in early development and they're harder. You need to do specific things to get them to be secreted in adulthood. The brain of a, of a child who's learning language is basically a big soup of these neurochemicals that allow it to be plastic because the whole, the nature wants that child to, to create a brain for it itself along with the parents, of course, that will, is mapped to that child's experience. If that's kicking soccer balls, or, you know, or boxing or learning mathematics, that's how the brains can be wired up. Now, there are some things that are just a given, the ability to, you know, generate motor movement and, and babble and eventually learn how to talk. We all come equipped with that pretty much. But skill learning is rapid beyond belief in childhood. I mean, children can learn three languages without an accent. 
by age 12. At 15, it becomes harder. At 20, it's really darn hard. And at 44, you know, my age, it's, you know, it's not impossible. It takes, it takes a lot of effort. So the baby brain has these neurochemicals. The young brain has these neurochemicals that are designed. They're there deliberately to increase pl- plasticity. What David and Torsten showed was that that period of plasticity is very long, but it tapers off. And then another group of researchers, a guy by the name of Mike Merzenich and Norm Weinberger, UCSF, UC Irvine, and others showed, well, wait, the, the adult brain is plastic too. You can change your brain however you want. It's a process that I call self-directed adaptive plasticity. You know, as a child, you can't control all your experience, but your brain is very plastic. As an adult, you can control more of your experience typically, but your brain isn't as readily plastic. So that's the trade-off. So how can you learn things? So we should probably talk about learning and acquiring new skills, and we should talk about unlearning because a lot of times what gets overlooked in the conversation about plasticity are the people that want to stop thinking a certain way, stop behaving a certain way. So to learn new things as an adult or to unlearn for that matter, attention is key. And I don't use the words like attention loosely. When I say attention, I mean secretion of acetylcholine at particular synapses. So you have a subset of neurons in the base of your forebrain, in the basal forebrain, that can provide this neuromodulator acetylcholine to particular synapses that are active during an activity and make those neurons and those synapses more likely to engage in activity later after the learning bout. Let me use an example from bodybuilding because it, it you know, because we're having this conversation and I know you're, you're much, you're many more things of course than bodybuilding, but it, it, this hopefully will work. Let's say that someone has the, people talk about the mind muscle connection, right? Mm-hmm. That like nonstop mind muscle connection. So mind muscle connection is really about the fact that you have lower motor neurons, neurons in your spinal cord that can move muscle. If I step on a sharp piece of glass, I move my foot up. My lower motor neurons handle that. It's like a reflex. I also have upper motor neurons that can control my motor movements. They're the ones that I say, okay, I'm going to lift my right foot deliberately. They're the ones that control that. They talk to lower motor neurons and they control them. These are motor neurons. The upper motor neurons are literally in your cortex, in your cerebral cortex and cerebellum. So there's like a deliberate capacity and it requires some degree of attention, not a lot in the case of just wanting to lift my foot. But when you do that, you engage these the movement of muscle isn't just dependent on acetylcholine at the muscle, it is, but also in the brain, there are neurons that secrete acetylcholine when you make a deliberate effort to do something specific. And then what happens is if those neurons are active enough in a short enough period of time, it's sort of like number of electrical events per unit time, they become more likely to fire on their own subsequently. So a lot of people have talked about the mind-muscle connection as this thing that happens between the, it's almost like it's happening at the muscle. It's literally happening in the mind. So upper motor neuron to lower motor neuron, lower motor neuron to muscle. The same thing is true for learning conversational French as an adult if you don't speak French already, like I don't. I need to attend very specifically to everything in order to, that's happening during that learning event. This is why it feels strained. This is the, the effort that's required in learning. As a child, it's different. There's a lot of acetylcholine around. These synapses will change readily on their own without a ton of effort. Even more effort is, means even more results in, as a child. As an adult, you need that effort. That strain that you feel is the, are the neural circuits that need to direct that acetylcholine to a particular location in your brain that it just hasn't been doing habitually. So attention is key. Now, the other thing that can amplify the learning process is a sense of urgency. Now, when I say urgency, I don't mean that lightly either. 
I'm talking about the secretion of noradrenaline or adrenaline. That heightens this process of neuroplasticity. And you need to be you need to have a certain level of alertness in order to have a certain level of attention. So the norepinephrine set raises kind of the tide on your alertness, makes you more alert. And acetylcholine allows you to direct that alertness into a particular kind of like soda straw view of something very specific. Okay. So now people always say to me, well, wait, but urgency can feel like stress. Aha. So what sets the upper bound on how much attention and how much urgency is how well you can maintain your attention. So translated in English, you want to focus as long as you can and as intensely as you can until your ability to focus starts dropping off. And for some people, that's going to be one minute. You know, for some people, it's going to be much, much longer. Now, this is where meditation becomes powerful because if you have a practice whereby you are skilled at directing that second sphere of attention to something outside you or in you, you're going to be better at neuroplasticity. Okay, so this ties back to the earlier conversation. And it's all because acetylcholine is literally like a spotlight of attention. Think of it as a neurochemical spotlight. Think of it as you walk into a room, all these people are talking. It's a big party. Chatter, 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 chatter. That's your brain. And now all of a sudden, there's a microphone thrown between two people having a particular conversation. And there's a spotlight that comes down on them. And that's the conversation that gets recorded. That's what acetylcholine is doing. That's the neuroplasticity process engaged. It kicks it off. So now, but imagine that this spotlight is rate limited, that over it requires a lot of energy. So then it starts becoming really, really diffuse. And then five minutes later, it's back to the whole room again. That's the when you need to step away from creating the stimulus. And the good news is, and this ties back to an earlier theme, neuroplasticity occurs during sleep and deep rest. It doesn't occur during the stimulus. It's just like training in the gym, right? The, the disruption to the system is caused in the gym. Now, it's a little tricky with weightlifting because you get this glimpse that the blood flow to the muscle, this, the so-called pump, gives you a glimpse of what you might look like. That's actually why it's so powerful. We, people, you, It's the one form of exercise where you get to sense what it's going to be like once the adaptation occurs, right? If I run up a steep hill and I'm, and I'm wheezing and coughing, I'm not sensing how the easier transition up that hill the next time, right? I, I have to, so there's a difference there. And of course, I'm overlooking a lot of stuff. I know nowadays there's a lot more known about sort of, uh, you know, blood flow and vasculature and higher up conditioning. And I see people tying tourniquets on themselves in the gym, all sorts of interesting stuff that I don't know anything about, but I'm curious to learn about. But the so this is the way you get neuroplasticity. Now that's for learning, for unlearning. So one question before we get into unlearning, is there any value in supplementing acetylcholine to actually kind of expedite that process? Has anyone uh, substantiated that? Great question. So I will give anecdotal evidence and then I'll give a little bit of concrete evidence. Anecdotal evidence, there is a very famous, uh, I can't give out his name, but Nobel Prize winning neuroscientist. When I met with him, I noticed the guy was chewing like five pieces of Nicorette an hour. He's in his seventies now, and I and I thought I asked him. I said, what, "What you know? What's the deal?" And he said, "Oh, you know, I, I do this to allow me to to focus. I used to smoke cigarettes, and it would allow me to focus my attention very sharply. And now I need to do this instead." Well, any smoker knows any nicotine smoker. It increases your attention because nicotine acetylcholine receptors come in two forms: nicotinic and muscarinic. So the nicotinic ones are the ones in the brain that control attention. So indeed augmenting the, the acetylcholine pathway increases your capacity for attention. Do you chew Nicorette? I don't chew Nicorette, but I, 
I hijack a different system. So I'm not, uh, again, I'm not a doctor, I'm a professor. So these are, if you're going to take anything or stop taking anything, you got to talk to your doctor first. I'm not responsible for, for this. But Nicorette can make people kind of jittery. I've got friends that dip Nicorette, that chew Nicorette. Uh, I've got friends that dip, although fewer these days. Very few people smoke these days cigarettes. But there's another system that works alongside it. So the real cocktail of neurochemicals for plasticity and attention is dopamine and acetylcholine. So I don't, I'm not a big fan of taking anything that is too close to the neurochemical end goal. So uh, things like L-dopa, mecunipurines, definitely not recreational drugs like cocaine and amphetamine, which all increase norepinephrine and dopamine. They increase that outward focus, right? I want that. It's over there. I'm super driven, right? There's a reason those drugs have those effects. They're also very detrimental. They tend to deplete one's own reward pathways and they, they cause really bad, bad effects in addition to being illegal. So, however, there are things to use perhaps on occasion that not always that are in the precursor pathway. So, things like L-tyrosine, which is a precursor to ultimately a precursor to dopamine, just like L-tryptophan is pretty far up from serotonin, I'd never recommend people take 5-HTP or, or serotonin itself because now your own system is going to start shutting down its production or you're going to deplete what you've got. But you can manipulate precursors. So occasionally, uh, you know, full disclosure, occasionally if I've got a lot of focus work to do and I haven't slept so well, or even if I have, I might take, you know, 500 milligrams of L-tyrosine. But that's me. Again, people have to decide, check with their doctor. But for nicotine augmentation, there aren't many things out there right now, but there are things in development. And actually, Charles Poliquin talked about this first about 15 years ago about how sprinters, one of the drugs that people use in competitive sport is, you know, getting quickest out the blocks is key. It's, you know, those races are one in milliseconds and who gets out the blocks fastest is a big part of the game. And so speeding up nerve transmission and attention to the gun um, going off is a big part of that. So there are things that augment acetylcholine. Most of them are in the prescription realm. I haven't dabbled in them. There are things coming, but right now L-tyrosine and the dopamine pathway is the one that I've focused on. Do you not feel comfortable mentioning the ones in prescription realm? I'm just curious. No, I, you know, it's, I've forgotten some of the names. I, again, I've never tried them. They have, can have serious side effects. I think these are things like bromocryptine and things like that. I'm not, yeah. no, I'm not shying away from the conversation because again, I'm not making recommendations. I'm just talking about what's out there. I think that the Nicorette sort of nicotine axis, the L-tyrosine and dopamine axis, these are things that you wouldn't want to do on a chronic basis because you want to maintain your ability to attend. Now, it is amazing that so many people take Adderall, right? And are taking prescription drugs for ADD. And those are drugs that mainly work through these pathways of increasing norepinephrine. Norepinephrine is, is going to give rise to the strain that you eventually feel. There's a beautiful paper out this last year that shows that quitting that, you know, it's interesting question. I can't lift a car, okay, unless it's a very small car, like a, like a toy car. But if you tell me, hey, let's run 50 miles, at some point, I'm, you know, the thought to kick in is going to kick in to stop. I've always wondered, you know, why do we have that impulse to stop when there's not an actual physical barrier? It's not pain necessarily. Turns out that this paper shows that norepinephrine with effort and attention. Norepinephrine builds up in the brainstem and eventually those levels exceed a certain threshold and they cause stopping. They cause you or animals to say enough. And so if you're pushing hard, you're, you're heading toward that wall. That just by definition. So as you can start to see, everything is this kind of 
yin yang for lack of a better phrase of effort and reward and focus but it's not infinite and that's where practices like meditation and deep relaxation and sleep come in as an ability to reset this but also to expand your capacity to direct your attention so that's why adderall works so well is it inhibits that desire to stop it inhibits the desire to stop and it narrows the spotlight of attention by engaging some of the forebrain circuits that a lot of our attention is dilated you know, on let, the phone has changed this, but you know, our attention tends to be dilated and that's very relaxing. Norepinephrine and the forebrain circuits associated with attention are, they create a kind of narrow funnel and that can be depleting. That's why at the end of a long day of hard mental work, you're like, oh my God, I'm exhausted. It's not the same as doing, you know, an hour of hard work in the gym or running fast and doing sprints, but, but it feels like strain. It's a real thing. It's neurochemical depletion and you can reset it. Right. So I interrupted you after you saying going into unlearning. So unlearning. So, you know, a lot of people are carrying hard stuff, right? I mean, you know, I think the discussion in the last 10 years has really evolved to the point where everyone realizes that, you know, we have traumas, whether or not that trauma was a parent not paying attention to you when you wanted it or were more severe traumas or physical traumas. And so, and we have certain thought patterns that are, that are challenging to tackle. So, a couple things about this. It's very hard to suppress thoughts. However, thoughts are just like actions in that you can deliberately set them and engage them. I can pick up a cup. I can walk across the room. I can decide not to do that. It's very hard to suppress thoughts. It's almost like trying to suppress your own breathing, but you can introduce competing thoughts. And this is where I think visualization and, and positive self-talk is, is powerful. I don't like to make too much of it because I, it's not, I'm not a psychologist and there's not a whole lot of science to support it yet, but thoughts are a deliberate form of mental action in the same way that you know physical actions are a form of, of deliberate action. And so in many ways, when you look at the trauma you know, support that's coming from neuroscience, a lot of it has to do with engaging a discussion around the the bad event, whatever that is to somebody, and then trying to suppress the so-called limbic system or fear system. And the practice that is really powerful, it's one of only three behaviorally approved practices for the for trauma, is EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And this is the it's an amazing discovery, really, you know, with my background in vision and my interest in stress, people used to always ask me about it. This involves making lateralized eye movements. So this is head stationary, head stationary, body stationary, and moving one's eyes back and forth from one side to the other. Yes, eyes open. It's necessary to see. Up and down eye movements aren't not do not provide the equivalent effect. And then the person recounts the trauma to a therapist. And when I first heard about this, and people were like, "How does it work?" I I had to kind of withhold my laughter. I was like, you got to be kidding me. There is no, I work on the eye movements. There's no way that eye movements impact the, the emotional memory system. I thought it was just like hocus pocus. And then two years ago, I really ate my words because a bunch of papers landed on my desk for review, a couple papers in animals, a couple papers in humans showing that these lateralized eye movements suppress activity of the, of the amygdala, the brain region involved in threat detection and aka fear. So there's something about these eye movements that is suppressing the fear response. And so when people repeat their trauma enough times while in a state of non-fear, they learn to uncouple the emotional memory from the experience, which is incredible. Now, why these lateralized eye movements? Those lateralized eye movements probably mimic or are what are engaged under conditions of certain kinds of physical movement. And we probably don't have time to go into that whole bit but you know your eye movements and your physical movements are are 
very closely linked to one another. They're part of a system that integrates in your cerebellum, the little so-called baby brain in the back of your brain. Not baby because it's young, but it looks like a little mini brain. And so these eye movements are powerfully reducing your your fear response. And now, of course, you can't walk around doing these eye movements because they interfere with doing stuff, but they can be done away from public speaking, away from events to try and unwire the relationship between negative stuff and the emotions. So people that come away from EMDR treatment, which should be done you know, for real trauma, severe trauma should be done with a trauma therapist, of course, but they come away from one to 10 of those sessions. It's got a very high success rate reporting that they can now recount this event. They still remember it, but it doesn't have the kind of acute pain that it once did created for them. It's remarkable. Is there some correlation there with eye saccades and, and why those things are successful as well? In again, I don't know what exactly many people in the science realm are using eye saccades for. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So eye movements are linked to these deeper limbic structures, the limbic structures being the ones that control emotionality and states of stress and so forth. You've got saccades, which you quite correctly described. They're the ones that kind of dart around from place to place. You've got smooth eye movements, smooth pursuit eye movements. And then you've got the ability to dial out your gaze and focus your gaze, probably something that we should touch on briefly at some point. The saccades are, it's interesting. So we have a study that we're submitting soon for publication. I'm really excited about this, that we've looked at people with generalized anxiety. These are people that just feel stressed all the time. They don't, they don't feel good. They, they're very stressed all the time, but it's not something specific. It's not a phobia or trauma related. And we've noticed that we found that it's a very strong effect. In fact, that the way they search visual environments is very erratic. They're always in a kind of saccade mode and it's a very random saccade mode compared to people that don't have generalized anxiety. So that doesn't mean saccades are bad. It just means that they're designed for visual scanning, whereas the ability to hold a focused gaze is really key. This is, I think, another one of the auxiliary benefits of meditation, whether or not it's open eye meditation or closed eye meditation, is you're, you're learning to control the eye movements that have an impact on your emotionality. And that's kind of a direct segue perhaps into the the fact that your vision is a powerful modulator of your internal state. This is something I've worked on extensively for a lot, a lot of years now, So that, that and there's a lot of literature on. So when you focus your attention on a particular place in space, especially if it's outside of you, but even if it's inside of you, there's a, a, a required increase in vigilance and attention. Now, it's not exhausting. Think of it as kind of like spending out pennies. You're not going to go poor really quick. I guess here we have pennies. I don't know what they use it up in Canada, but uh, small, small coin and value. But it's vastly different than the experience you have when you dial out your vision. So this is, you know, you're walking or you're talking or you're sitting and you, you dial out your vision so that you, with head and eyes stationary, not moving, you're looking at the, the ceiling, the walls, the floor, and now you see yourself in this space almost looks like a sphere there's a very rapid and dramatic reduction in overall levels of stress when you do that because you're disengaging this attentional system. And I think I'm not against the phone. I'm from Silicon Valley. I use a lot of technology. But one of the things we've given up in recent years is the opportunity for this so-called panoramic vision or wide gaze at periodically throughout our day. So you used to finish having a conversation. You walked to your car and you're in panoramic gaze. Now we look at our phone. You'd finish a podcast, you'd go into the kitchen, maybe prepare something to eat, 
and you're in panoramic vision. Even when you drive, you're in panoramic vision. Most people don't know that. But now, a lot of those little gaps in our attention that were that served us well before are occupied by high attentional states. We're reading fine print. We're waking up reading fine print. We're going to sleep reading fine print. And so, we're overworking our attentional system. And we're trying to think of, oh, is it the Instagram itself? Is it the content on the internet? Maybe, yeah, probably also that too. But a lot of it is just the way we're engaging with the world. We're hardly ever not engaging this focal attention system. And this panoramic system was designed to let us relax so that we could reattend very sharply and with very high efficiency later. So the, the people that I know that are the highest mental performers are really good at this. They're I've started locking my phone in a safe when I when I write or when I work, just so I won't go near it. I need that. And they leave meetings and they're not immediately on their phone. They're kind of panning out, you know, and allowing themselves to recover or reset the ability to attend so that then when they go into the next meeting or they do sit down at their computer or their phone, they're in 100% focused mode. So these are these are neural circuits that support these different modes of being. That's brilliant advice. And so kind of bridging the gap there, you mentioned these people who have generalized anxiety. You mentioned people just, you know, general anxiety, even if it's not generalized, if it's, you know, you know, specific to certain scenarios. Are there things that stand out in your mind, whether it be environmental or nutritional or social, that are maybe the biggest rocks that people could start paying attention to, to start decreasing the stressors. And the one you said right there was obvious, like put your phone away, right? Allow your brain to kind of go panoramic. But is there other things? Because I know you talk a lot about light. I know you talk a lot about circadian rhythms. Like what are the things that the listeners should be focusing on as far as the big rocks that can ultimately help us decrease the overall stress tone? Yeah. Be happy to talk about it. So again, goes back to the visual system. So a lot of people don't think about how their sleep is determined by their visual system, but it is. You know, the original function of your eyes, which are actually a little piece of your brain that is intentionally outside your skull, is not to see. Your eyes were put outside your retinas. This piece of your brain was put outside your skull to tell your brain when to be alert and when to be asleep. All animals do this, and and this is true because we know this because in blind people or in animals that are that are form blind, there are still some neurons that sit outside and say, hey, when is the sun coming out and when's it setting and matching your internal landscape, so your energy levels and sleepiness and attentional levels, et cetera, to the external landscape. This is fundamental evolution of all species because you got to match this among the members of the species. And so, you do that through the one thing that's a constant, which is the rising and setting of the sun. Now, not saying you have to get up at sunrise. I'm not saying you have to go to bed at sunset. Most people aren't going to do that. I don't do that. However, there's a fundamental health benefit, both mental health and physical health benefit to uh, having a properly aligned circadian clock. Circadian just means 24 or about 24 hours. You know, we could do a whole podcast on this, but just briefly, you know, you got this clock above the roof of your mouth called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It sets all the clocks of all the cells in your body, including their genomes and their metabolism. The benefits of sleep are very clear. The benefits of having a well-anchored, what I, and I'll explain what I mean by anchored, circadian system are enormous. I mean, this is the difference between fat loss and no fat loss, muscle gain and no muscle gain, learning and, and not learning. This is the ability to not snap when someone says something that would otherwise trigger you or, or respond. It is the fundamental, it's the foundation of our biology. And it starts with some simple practices that animals do, but humans have really gotten far away from because of the advent of artificial light and technology. First of all, 
the longer you've been in the dark or you've been asleep, the more susceptible this clock is to shifting. Okay. What I mean by that is when you wake up, it's fine to look at artificial lights. I'll explain why I think the phone shouldn't be the first artificial light you look at. But if their sun is out, and even if it's cloudy, going outside or or through a window is fine as long as it's not darkly tinted window. And getting some sunlight exposure to your eyes, don't look directly at the sun, but the, to your eyes will wake up this system. It'll signal that your circadian clock that now we're approaching the time in which you want to be alert and focused. And it's setting a timer for when you're going to be sleepy and want to go into deep sleep. 12 to 15 hours later. So that stimulus of either bright sunlight or sunlight through clouds or even artificial lights, bright artificial lights is powerful, especially in the winter months. Likewise, throughout the day, your clock is not really available for shifting if it's been in the light a long time. If I look outside now and I get a lot of sunlight in my eyes, it's not really going to impact my circadian clock because nature's smart. It designed this clock to shut down and say it, it says, I can't be set right now. Only in the morning when you wake up, only when you've been in the dark for a while and only at night. This is why jet lag, it takes a while to recover from. So, because your clock isn't available to shift anytime the sun is out. Morning after you wake up and then again in the evening, if you can get just a little bit of natural light as the sun is setting, the, the light at that time is, is chromatically, we say, that the, the, the wavelengths of light are slightly different and they signal what's called an evening oscillator. They inform the brain that nighttime is coming and they're going to help you sleep better. Now, the other thing to avoid is bright light exposure in the middle of the night between midnight and 4 a.m. If you're waking up in the middle of the night and you're looking at your phone, unless it's very, very dim or it's an emergency or you're required to look at a screen, you are activating a pro-depressive circuit. This is a circuit that was discovered by a group at NIH that shows that if you get this light exposure in the middle of the dark phase of your circadian cycle, aka in the middle of the night, you are activating a kind of low level of depression. And even if you have a very robust mood, meaning you're somebody who's just generally positive, consider this, the area of the brain that it activates to cause these depressive-like symptoms also has a direct connection to the pancreas and is controlling your circadian cycle of, of blood sugar production and insulin production. So the habenula, this is the name of the structure is called the habenula, just so people don't think I'm like pulling this stuff out of, out of nowhere, is activates a kind of disappointment circuit, but it has another effect, which is to control the timing of secretion of insulin from the pancreas. So, you know, getting some light early in the day, yes, it can be artificial light or sunlight and not getting bright light, especially not bright light in the middle of the night is key to every aspect of mental and physical health. And it's so simple, right? It's, it's, now it's tricky sometimes for people to avoid looking at the phone. I recommend doing a yoga nidra because I've offered that up as a different practice, right? Or reading a book. If you have really low levels of yellowish lights and they're set low in the room, not overhead, you're not going to mess up your clock. So you don't have to go dark like at six o'clock or eight o'clock. That's fine. People who are wearing these glasses to filter out blue light, Look, the truth is it's going to help a little bit, but your concern is bright light, not blue light per se. So I don't think you need the glasses if you want to use them fine, but it's the overhead lights that are really bright fluorescent lights that are key. Now, if you have to run to the pharmacy in the middle of the night, which basically looks like the middle of the day because they have those bright fluorescent lights, fine. You know, doing this once isn't going to screw you up forever, but it's what you're doing. Like nutrition, it's what you do on a, on a regular basis that has this effect. And this is because, again, your vision is responsible for setting your the overall levels of arousal from moment to moment and from timing your overall kind of set point of when to be awake and when to be asleep. And there are a 
ton of negative health effects that happen if you're screwing this thing up. You get diabetes-like effects. You get mental fog. You get mental health issues if you're pre, you know, predisposition, depression, or even schizophrenia. There are a million things that happen that are bad when you don't obey this kind of natural aspect of our biology. It is the equivalent of like ingesting a little bit of poison. It's not going to kill you, but over time, this can really be detrimental. And on the flip side, getting these light pulses early in the day, as we call them, light exposure, it's a game changer. And it, you know, it takes, takes a couple of weeks, just like good nutrition. You know, you're not going to go lean overnight, but after a couple of weeks, you really start to notice the difference. I recommend people not look at their phone for the first 30 minutes that they're awake, but I'm aware that you know, because it says you're using your attention and you're sharpening it to a narrow focus, you know, to transition into that alertness across the morning. However, I am aware that not looking at the phone creates its own anxiety, right? Because when you're traveling and you want to, and people care about you and you're, you care about them or both, you know, there's, there's, this is something that hasn't been discussed. There's an anxiety associated with not looking at the phone that we need to acknowledge. We can't just tell people, don't look at your phone. So that's my thoughts on that. That's amazing. Now, shifting gears just a little bit, because I thought this would be massively uh, valuable, is prior to us getting the podcast, you talked about this concept of earning your mental health. And I thought that was so insightful and so interesting. And I'd love for you to kind of set us down that path of what does that look like? Yeah. So this is really borrowed from my longstanding interest in health and fitness. You know, I, my personal story isn't relevant here, but I, I have to say, you know, one of the reasons I was so excited and honored to go on your podcast is, you know, I, I was never a, an athlete, but a professional athlete. I did a lot of, a lot of sports, but I took up weight training early and there are principles from health and fitness in particular weight training that I think have very important relevance in the mental health space as well, but we haven't necessarily thought about them in that way yet. So here's the thing. If I came to you and I said, hey, Ben, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, you know, whatever, what I'm, I don't know what I am. I don't measure, but you know, I'm, I'm 15% body fat and I weigh, you know, 220 and I want to, I want to be 5% body fat, but I just, it, you'd say, and I'm really frustrated that I'm not, you'd say, okay, well, there are things you can do to get there, right? There are powerful things that you can do. And, you know, here's what you do. If someone is feeling lousy or in our just sort of general sense about mental health is that it's kind of a, we're supposed to just have it. But I think mental health, just like physical health, you have to earn it. You have to earn it through practices that include good nutrition and exercise and sleep and social engagement and not toxic social engagement. You have to earn it through dedicated work to your, for lack of a better way to put it, your consciousness, you know, how good are you at directing your attention? You know, we, we all would love to feel great all the time and have the body and mind we want, but we all know we have to earn it in the physical space. Why not in the mental space? Now, I want to be very clear. I am not saying that people who have mental illness, schizophrenia and, and depression and things like that have failed themselves and therefore they you know those things can be the product of our upbringing they can be the product of our neurochemistry but those people too need tools in order to move themselves towards mental health and i i just think that the the concept of mental health is often the, or the words are often just a kind of a proxy for mental illness and we really need to be clear about what we're talking about great mental health being an optimist having a realistic and healthy relationship to sadness too 
right? To be able to feel and know that those feelings are going to pass and that then you can move back into functionality. I consider that an aspect of mental health an ability to access creative states, relaxed states and deliberate focused, really like game on hundred percent, you know, kind of eye of the tiger states for lack of a better way to put it. I think that's mental health also. And so, Mental illness has been, has dominated the conversation because it's such an important issue that we're now coming to terms with, which is that people are suffering. You know, my lab works on these issues because I, I very much realize people are suffering. I've lo- I lost my first you know academic advisor suicide, it, and he worked on these issues. So I have the utmost sympathy and and even some empathy for mental health issues. But I think that uh, and mental illness. But when it comes to mental health, the average person who's feeling anxious and doesn't like the way they feel, who's feeling depressed and doesn't like the way they feel. They need to access resources and a lot of those resources are things that they themselves can do that are cost-free, but it requires the person do it. We can't there will be there will never be a pillar potion that will transform somebody into the physique they want. And in the same way, there will never be a pillar potion that is going to transform people into having the mind that they want. It takes work. Now, a big part of my work and a big part of the reason I'm so excited about what you're doing is that there are now people who have who trudged that path and who found things and are trying to develop and discover things. And the conversation is happening. I am I'm more optimistic than ever that thanks to, of all things, social media and the internet, information is getting to the far corners of the earth and into people's rooms where they're really feeling miserable, they're feeling lost, they don't have resources, and as well as people who are doing very well and are feeling lost despite having resources. And people are starting to grab a hold of the levers. It's, you know, just like with physical fitness, it's you can run further to get better at endurance. You can stretch more to get more bendy. You can lift heavier objects to get stronger, etc. People are realizing, "Huh, every opportunity I have, between a meeting or where I take five seconds and go into panoramic vision as opposed to immediately glancing at my phone, or I get a light pulse early in the morning, four days a week, five days a week, or I avoid looking at screens in the middle of the night, I read or do or meditate instead. Now the needle starts to move. And if when you map it onto the kind of parallel of physical fitness, it's kind of a duh. It's like, wow, of course, we got to do this stuff. But We've been, as a culture, have been so shell-shocked by the amount of mental illness that we've forgotten that we also need to all take active steps towards just baseline mental health. And I think of those as sleep, nutrition, social connection, all the things we talked about. So that's, that's my stance on this. No one can do the work for us. We have to do the work and we can help, but we can help each other and we can help share tools. And I'm uh, that's a big part of what I'm about these days is like get stuff out of the laboratory and into people's hands that's safe and reliable so that they can start taking some action. You know, we need the squat, deadlift, and bench press of mental health. And I think we've, we know what those are. Those are light, right? Those are light social engagement and sleep. I'm probably missing some. Someone's going to, you know. Maybe exercise. And exercise. Exercise. Sorry. Yeah. So I would say there are four. I don't know. I, I mapped onto a, an analogy of three. So I would say it, light, definitely t- correctly timed light, social engagement, exercise and movement. We were designed to move. My friend and colleague John Rady from Harvard Medical School wrote the book Spark and he also wrote Go Wild where he talks about how a lot of our brain is devoted to movement, complex movement, just not just uniplanar movement. Movement and then obviously nutrition is key. Nutrition is absolutely key. 
Absolutely fascinating. Now, I guess the final question is, when are you writing the book on getting this into people's hands, all these amazing concepts, or conversely, if you're not writing the book yet, do you have one that you recommend that you would lean on or suggest people get out there and pick up right away? Thanks for asking. So yes, so I am in the process of writing a book now. It should be out hopefully in 2020. I got a contract with Simon & Schuster. I'm in great hands with their editorial staff. And so I'm working day in and day out on it. It's going to go in for edits soon and should be out sometime in 2020. Meanwhile, I'm going to continue to... We haven't even settled on title yet, so I, I don't want to put anything out there early, but I will let you know when it comes out. Uh, it includes all this and and a lot more, a lot on sort of how to access creative states and focus states and really just protocols and to, a lot of tools in, in addition to information. I do the public education on Instagram, which is Huberman Lab, H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N-L-A-B, that for just neuroscience information generally. If anyone wants to be a subject in our experiments, we pay you. So it's not a sales pitch. We give you a small amount. It's not a it's $40 or $50, I think, in a parking pass and a shirt. Come to the lab. It's about two hours of commitment. We do need you to come to the lab to do it, but you can contact me through Instagram. You can just direct message me. And then I'm hoping in 2020 to also launch a YouTube series, kind of longer format, specific topic series on on neuroscience, because I think the information it can exist differently in a longer format. It's indexable on like on Instagram. And I'm out there, you know, speaking in various places. I'd love, you know, I I dream about doing a tour of just you know, getting up on stage with somebody like yourself and talking about these issues with an audience. So there's a Q&A. Who knows? Maybe we could do that sometime. We're going to make that happen. Great. Would love that. So yeah, that's how to find me. And uh, I realize I talk fast and I tend to go long on topics, but I hope it was digestible. And yeah, that's that's what I'm about these days. Absolutely phenomenal. And it's great that you talk fast because if worst case, people need to slow down the podcast and listen to it multiple times. I always make the recommendation to show up with a pen and and write things down. But Literally, I think we just got uh, absolutely schooled in the topic of neuroscience. And if I could, you know, offer any any suggestion on on how to get more people involved in this, I think why people don't dive in is they think it's very complex, and it is, and they don't have a framework to of which to kind of place things in their mind, right? They just hear all of this information. So your concept of giving them kind of four big boxes that they can jump off of, and then going down those paths is very helpful because. You know, the concept of neuroscience is so complex and it's a bunch of terminology nobody's ever heard of. And once they start to understand, oh, there's really these these small kind of subsections that we should be focusing on, for me anyways, it, that, that's very helpful to start chunking down from that. So again, it may be a lot more complex than just those four subsections, but kind of giving you an idea of, um, you know, maybe how we get more people involved in this is just, here's a framework, like chunk down from this, right? And so when you do your YouTube channel, I'd love to see that because, I mean, I know I'd watch every video and I have watched every video on Instagram and I highly suggest everybody, if you're not already following Huberman Lab, go do it right now. And Dr. Huberman has you know, truly been a pleasure. No, well, thanks for those pointers. Yeah, I'm still learning how to, you know, I've been locked in the lab for a long time and uh, starting to get out there a little bit more and communicate with people. I love the questions. I love hearing from people and their interest in brain science. It is a vast space and putting a structure on it that's accessible is key. So your pointers are excellent ones. And so I'll, I'll be coming to you for for additional advice. You can really feel your sincerity and your desire to help through your Instagram videos. Like it's just, it's just so real. And I'm so grateful for that. Cause that's, I mean, that's, it's most, most scientists are either not, I shouldn't say most bad generalized, but many are, are arrogant or, you know, socially not able to kind of convey the message as well as you. So it's truly is, it's, it's amazing. And as we spoke, we started the conversation, you know, you've got me kind of reinterested. I've always been interested in neuroscience, but excited again about, um, you know, pursuing this at a deeper level because I don't understand it at the level I'd like to, but I'd really, really like to dive into it at a deeper level. 
Great. Well, the yogis were the, or the first neuroscientists, right? And I do try and make it about the audience. We do the concept, science is one silo in the, you know, in the medicine, science, wellness, you know, it, there's so many silos and we need to build bridges. I know I said it multiple times and your listeners are probably going to think that I'm just sort of kissing up because I'm on here. But like, look, the fact of the matter is I have deep respect for what you're doing. Anyone who can do well in, in, in an arena and then say, hey, I'm going to export the best of what I know from that experience and combine it with these other things that are really key and then do this massive give. You know, that's what we need more of in this world. And long after I'm gone and you're gone too, let's hope it's a long time from now, you know, there'll hopefully be another set of people who are just amplifying the discussion even more and more. So we need more folks in this space doing this kind of work. Amazing. So more work, hopefully in the future between you and I really look forward to that, Dr. Huberman. Thanks again for your time. Likewise. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen. Just one more thing for me before you go. I hope you loved this podcast. We talked so much about the brain, about neuroscience, about light, about meditation, about yoga, some super interesting things that if you're not already interested in these things, hopefully by the end of this brilliant conversation, you are now interested and realize the potential value of paying attention to these things in your life. Not only if you're trying to optimize your mind, but if you're trying to optimize your body, as Dr. Huberman alluded to, there's inextricable link between body and mind. You can't optimize your body without first optimizing your mind and where the mind goes, the body will follow. And, and maybe conversely, you could argue the opposite as well, where the body goes, the mind will follow. But the main point to take away, these two things are inextricably linked. They can't be separated. If you're trying to optimize your body, you must also optimize your mind. If you're always living in a stress state, lacking sleep, or in any way anxious or depressed, you're not going to build your, your body. So, you know, this demographic of this podcast is literally the perfect demographic to hear this amazing neuroscience applied by Dr. Huberman. So guys, thank you so much for tuning in. If you did love it, I would appreciate a share and a review and definitely go over to Instagram and follow Dr. Huberman at Huberman Lab. He's just you know, absolutely brilliant. And I hope we can bring you more in the future. Him and I have made some plans to connect in 2020 and definitely dive deeper on this stuff and how we can apply it directly to living our greatest life in a body we love. Have an amazing day. I'm so grateful for you guys being here. And I hope that every day is a great one. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.